Alright, beginning in verse number 1 of Genesis chapter 21. The Bible says, And the Lord visited Sarah as He had said. Now, if you underline in your Bible, and it doesn't bother me if you do, but if you do, I want you to underscore that phrase, as He had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah, and underscore this phrase, as He had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age, And notice this, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And underscore that as well. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. And all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a great nation, make a nation, because he is thy seed. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Pray with me this evening. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that you've given us. Lord, help us to not take it lightly. Help us to treat the service tonight with the same esteem that we did the one this morning. Lord, with the same esteem that we will every Christmas and every Easter and every special service that we might be a part of. For Lord, it's your presence that makes a service special. And I covet your presence to be manifest tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd take your word and apply it to the hearts of your people. I'm incapable for that task. Lord, I can proclaim and I can give the word and I can give a message, but God, you must make it real to our hearts. And I pray that each heart's need would be met, Lord, and you know what those needs are. If there's one amongst us, Father, that's lost, show them their lost state. Lord, they don't know they're lost, just like I didn't know I was lost until you showed me. And I pray you'd convict and convince them of their lost state and show them their need of Calvary. Lord, I pray they'd come to know your Son as their Savior. Lord, if there's some amongst us that are heavy laden and they need burdens alleviated, I pray that you'd allow them to cast their cares upon you and give them the help to do it. Lord, if there's some amongst us with sin in their hearts and in their lives, maybe no one knows about it, but you do, Lord. I pray you'd convict them of it and show them what a better way it is to walk in fellowship with you instead of in frustration of our flesh. Lord, I love you tonight and I thank you for everything you've done. And Lord, when you do these things in response to the prayer of your people, we'll be sure to give you the praise and honor and glory that's due your name. 
We ask these things in that precious and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Now, we're on familiar territory in Genesis chapter 21. If you was here this morning, you heard a message out of this chapter. But this morning, we focused our attention upon this little bondwoman, Hagar. And on the beautiful question that God asked her in verse 17, What aileth thee, Hagar? And i got to be honest with you, it's not because I preached a, a sermon that I consider to be good or, or worthy, because I'll be honest, I'm just clay, I'm just dirt, I'm just mud. In fact, I'm so much mud, people think that's my name anymore, amen? But I got a little help this morning, and I hope you did too, from the Holy Spirit. But tonight I want us to shift our focus away from Hagar, and I want us to look at Abraham, and more particularly faith in the life of Abraham. This is the 11th part in our series on faith in the life of Abraham. And the Lord shows us that faith, now listen to me, salvation as far as soul salvation occurs in an instant and in a moment when a sinner accepts Christ as their Savior. But the walk of faith is a progressive thing. We grow in faith, or at least we should. We exercise our faith and it grows and it strengthens. Faith is much like a muscle. If it's not exercised, it atrophies. But if it's worked and if it's promoted and if it's pushed, it's something that will grow with the Lord. Many long years have passed. In fact, 25 years have passed in Abraham's life since he departed from his family and went out from Ur of the Chaldees. And now we find the culmination of God's promise to him. God made the promise to Abraham that he would leave his family and leave his friends and leave his home and begin to follow God in faith. And that God would bring him into a land that would belong to him and to his seed after him. Abraham was an old man when he left her of the Chaldees and he just got older. You know, that's how life is. You don't get no younger. You just get older. Amen. And Abraham had been getting older and older, but God had made a promise to him that he would have a son in his old age. We talked this morning about how that Abraham, through a lack of faith and through an indulgence of the flesh, took this young woman, Hagar, this bond woman, this handmaid, this servant girl, and bore as she bore a child to Abraham, and that child was Ishmael. But we find that just as God said it would happen, that God kept his promise. And we see Abraham's faith in a jubilant place tonight. We see it in a place of rejoicing, but we see it in a place of responsibility as well. And so many long years have passed and he's waited for this time. And it's interesting to note a few things about this passage. Now tonight I want you to open your heart to the Word of God. And I want us to look at three things. I had you underscore three places in the first two verses of this chapter because they are significant in Abraham's life. For you see, before God ever gives Abraham the promised child, He makes sure that Abraham understands the foundation of this promise and the foundation of his faith. And if you're writing it down, you can jot down that we see the resource of Abraham's faith. Three times the Word of God is mentioned in these first two verses. In verse 1 it says, And the Lord visited Sarah as He had said. It says, And the Lord did unto Sarah as He had spoken. And in verse 2 it says, For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. Do you know the book of Romans teaches us very clearly that faith does not come by feeling. You say, preacher, are you against feeling? No, I'm not against feeling. 
And I don't think it's wrong to get excited. And I don't think it's wrong to get happy. And I certainly don't think it's wrong to praise the Lord. But faith does not come from feeling. You might say, oh, well, preacher, faith comes from religious raising. No, that's not where faith comes from. There's lots of people in this world that have been raised in a religious environment that grow up to hate God and curse God and claim there is no God. By the way, isn't that funny that the atheists curse a God that they don't even believe in? Amen? But uh, we find that religious environment does not necessarily cultivate faith. Now, if you've got kids, raise them in a Christian home. I'm not saying it's to no avail, but I'm saying religious environment in and of itself does not cultivate or breed faith. We could go on down the line. Baptism does not bring faith. Baptism is an outward show of an inward act of faith. And uh, church membership does not produce faith. Now, a person, if they're a part of a church, they ought to be faithful to it. But there's plenty of people with their names on the roll of Walridge, many other churches all around this city and this county and this state and this country and this world uh, that are not faithful to the Lord. And they don't live a life of faith even though their name is associated with a local body. But what we find is this, there's one source of faith for the life of the believer. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. There's only one place that faith comes from, and that's from the Word of God. Now you say, preacher, why is that? Well, because the Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You see, faith is us taking God's Word and believing in it and acting upon it because of whose Word it is. And in this passage, we find that the Lord puts an emphasis on where Abraham's faith has come from. You see, Abraham wasn't a man of faith until the Lord spoke to him. Until the Word of God in some way entered into Abraham's life, the idea of faith was completely foreign and alien to him. And let me say that the lost man has no concept of what faith truly is. We speak of faith in this world. Politicians speak of faith. By the way, when the politician speaks of it, you know there's something wrong with it. Amen? Politicians speak of faith. Of course, religious leaders speak of faith. Hollywood actors speak of faith. But what they mean is a religious structure when they speak of faith. But faith is the effectual confidence and trust of the believer in the Word of God. Faith is something that is bred out of the Word of God because we're believing God for who God is. And in this passage, it's noted three times that the Word of God is the source of Abraham's faith. I want you to notice that three things are said. And I believe if you pay close attention, you'll see that these three things are said. Look at the second phrase that's used in verse number 1. The Bible says, And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. It does not say that Sarah did unto the Lord or Abraham did unto the Lord, but it says that the Lord did something in the life of Sarah. Now, we know it was that he uh, rejuvenated her body and made her able to bear children. But the thing that I find interesting is that God puts an emphasis on this, that God does what He says He'll do. Now, you may say, preacher, that's elementary. That's simple. I mean, that's something we learn when we're children in Sunday school and in vacation Bible school. And you'd be right about that. But can I tell you tonight that the majority of Christians still don't have that under control? You say, preacher, why do you believe that? I can tell it by the disobedience in our lives. You see, the Bible says Christ gave this exhortation to his disciples. He said, without me, you can do nothing. But you know what we do? We try to do everything without him. Why is that? 
We don't believe the word of God. The Bible says that Christ could come at any moment. Do you believe that tonight? I believe that. I believe he could come before we're done with this message. I've preached a few of them that you've said, Preacher, I thought he was going to come before he was done too. Amen. But in this, uh, in the Word of God, we're told that Christ could come at any moment. The Bible says we're to lift up our heads and we're to look. That our redemption draweth nigh, that the Lord's coming soon, that He could come at any moment. In Paul's day, the Lord was waiting for the, uh, or Paul was waiting for the Lord to come back. He said, we wait for the appearing of His dear Son. We, not you, not somewhere in the eons of time, infinitely in front of us, but He said, we wait. For the appearing of His dear Son. The Lord's return is imminent. I believe He could have come back at any time after Scripture was closed. You say, why do you believe that? Because they were looking for Him. And I don't believe the Lord would have bluffed Paul, do you? And I believe He could come back at any time. But how do we live? Now, wait a minute. How do we live in light of that? And do we really, really believe that He could come back at any moment? I want to ask you a couple questions. If the Lord was to come back tonight... Would you be satisfied with this as the very last day you've ever lived? He said, oh, preacher, I was in church today. And that's good. I mean, God bless you. I'm glad you're here. I wouldn't have nobody gripe at if you weren't here, would I? <laughs> but what about if yesterday had been your very last day? Would you be satisfied with the way you had lived your very last day? I know people say, well, if I knew that the Lord was coming back tomorrow, I'd spend time with my family. And that's good, but can I remind you that you have all of eternity to spend with your family if they know Christ as their Savior? Some people say, well, you know, I'd go out, I'd live it up. What, so you'd have more to be ashamed of at the judgment seat of Christ? Let me tell you the activity and action of a man that believes the Lord is coming back at any moment. First off, he's fervent in soul winning. He believes that the Lord's coming back. He believes he has a responsibility to tell others. Don't tell me you believe the Lord's coming back if you don't have a concern for the souls of others. It just rings untrue. Number two, he has respect for the Word of God. He obeys the Word of God because if he believes the one portion, he's going to believe all, believe all of it. He lives a clean and holy life in response of obedience to the Word of God. Number three, he's a prayer. He's got a prayer closet, and he uses it. We could go on and on and on, but the point is this. We say we understand that God does what he says he's going to do, but sometimes we don't live our life in that way. Can I say that not only do we see that God is going to do what he said he's going to do, and he does what he says he's going to do, but notice the first phrase that's used in this passage, verse number 1. And the Lord visited Sarah, notice this, as he had spoken, as he had said. Hey, you say, preacher, that's just saying the Lord visited Sarah and he had said he was going to visit Sarah. No, that's not what I believe. I believe what it's saying is this, not just that the Lord does what he says he's going to do, but that the Lord does it in the way he says he's going to do it. You see, God had already told Abraham that uh, in chapter number 18, that about this time, the time of life, this time next year, that the Lord was going to visit Sarah. And he did it in the way that he said he was going to do it. You know, you say, preacher, of course the Lord does things the way he says he's going to do them. If he does what he says he's going to do, surely he's going to do it in the way he says he's going to do it. I understand that. Do you? Let me ask you this. When you come upon hard times, do you turn around and curse God? When you come upon difficulties in your life, do you start wondering where God's at? Now, I know difficulties are, well, they're difficult. <laughs> it's tough. Nobody likes them and we ought not to like them. 
But the Bible says, Yea, and all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Peter wrote to the scattered believers and said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing hath happened unto you. He said, There's no temptation fallen you, but such as is common to man. And he said that your brethren in the world are tempted just like you are. And when we come upon hard times, you know what we do? We say, Lord, I didn't sign on for this. I didn't sign on for this. You know, you say, preacher, you're beating up all over us. No, let me tell you something. If you find yourself in that shape, you're in pretty good company. Uh, There's a lot of beatitudes in the Bible. We think of the ones in the book of Matthew, and certainly those are beatitudes. But you know, the Bible is full of beatitudes. Blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. And we find a beatitude that most people have forgotten. In fact, old Vance Havner used to call it the forgotten beatitude. John the Baptist, that great prophet, the Bible says that there was no other woman, uh, no other man born of woman in this world greater than John the Baptist. Boy, he was a man of God. And John the Baptist had uh, stood up and publicly rebuked and publicly pointed out uh, the king for having taken his brother's wife. And so the Bible tells us that the king took John the Baptist, threw him in prison. Most of you know the story of uh, how that he beheaded John and uh, how that the uh, mother of the king's uh, or the king's wife had requested for the head of John the Baptist. And we've heard it many, many, many times. But there's a portion of that story that very few people ever reflect on. The Bible tells us that while John was in prison, he sent disciples to Jesus with this question. Are you really who you say you are? What causes, what provokes a question like that? You see, John was shut up in prison. He had fallen on difficult and hard times. He could not understand why it was. You can imagine, John, it was his responsibility to make straight the way of the Lord, to proclaim the coming kingdom of God. And I'm sure that John thought that that earthly kingdom was going to be set up during his lifetime. The apostles thought it was. Don't you believe John thought it was? He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And now all of a sudden, John is facing the chopping block and he doesn't understand what's taking place in his life. So he sends these disciples, says, are you who you say you are? And the Lord sends back this word. He said, go and uh, tell John about the miracles that I've done, about the things that God is doing. But then he gives this statement, this forgotten beatitude. He said, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now you say, preacher, what does that mean? Is the Bible saying that those that are offended by others and offend others for the cause of Christ, that they're not blessed? No, the Bible says we ought to rejoice when men uh, persecute us. Well, is it saying that uh, those that are offended because of Christ Jesus? And on and on we could ask questions. Let me give you the plain understanding. Christ is saying this, John, blessed is the man that doesn't get upset with me over the way that I run my business. John was having a tough time with the way things were going. But I'll tell you what he was doing. He believed God was going to do what he said he was going to do. He just didn't believe God was going to do it in the way he said he was going to do it. The suffering Savior had been prophesied in the Word of God. It was no secret, although I understand that because of their religion, many of the Jews were blinded to the truth of a suffering Savior. But certainly a prophet of God like John could have opened up the book of Isaiah and read the 53rd chapter and seen the Savior in it. The Ethiopian eunuch did. 
And yet John is now coming to a place where he doesn't understand why things are going the way they're going. Let me just give you a little bit of advice. When you come to a fork in the road in a difficult place, just let God be God and you be the servant. You be the child. It's not always easy to go through the difficult times in life. It's not always easy to face the things we have to face. But no matter what you're going through, God in heaven is still God in heaven. We find that God's going to do what He says He's going to do, and He's going to do it the way He says He's going to do it. But I want to give you a third thing. Look at what it says in verse number 3. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age. Now notice this phrase. At the set time of which God had spoken to him. I believe that God is getting across to Abraham and showing as the resource of his faith that the Lord does what he says he's going to do and the way he says he's going to do it, and he does it when he's going to do it, when he said, when he promised. Timing is one of the most difficult elements of the Christian walk. You ever feel like you and God just worked on different timetables? <laughs> I feel like that a lot. <laughs> and the truth is, you probably do. God is not inside of eternity, he inhabits eternity. That's what the, song, the uh, book of Isaiah tells us. In fact, that's the only time that the word eternity is found in your Bible. It's in the book of Isaiah. Eternals found many times, everlasting, and on and on. But the word eternity is found only one time, and it says that Jehovah is the, the God, that the Lord God inhabiteth eternity. God is not bound by time. He's not bound to it in the past, the present, or the future. And so that tells me something. God understands and has perfect timing. It's easy to say I trust God's timing until the way gets rough. It's easy to trust God's timing until things begin to look dismal. It's easy to trust God's timing until you think you could do it in a better way. That's when faith comes into play. When you come to a place where you have a choice, I can either trust God in His timing Boy, don't you know Job struggled with timing? Don't you know Job just struggled with what God was doing in his life? You read through the book of Job and you'll find that's the case. Job's greatest struggle was not his trials, but it was God's timetable and his darkness over the matter. Job felt like if he could understand what God was doing, he could bear it a little easier. And you know, burdens are a little easier to bear when we can make sense out of them. But what truth do we find? The latter end of Job was better than the beginning. Regardless of the fact that he couldn't understand God's timing, God was still in control. God was still working all things together for good. And what does Job say about timing? He says, but he knoweth the way that I take. Listen to this now. This is a time word. When. That's a time word, right? When. When? In other words, when are you going to do that? I'm going to do that when I get back. That's a time word. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job says this about timing. I don't understand it. I can't make sense out of it. I can't see clearly what God's timing is. But I do know this, that God knows what his timing is. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. We see the resource of Abraham's faith. But I want you to notice the response of Abraham's faith. Faith, now listen, if you're going to write something down from this message, write this down. Faith always responds. Faith always responds. 
when we don't respond to God, it's it's an act of disbelief. When God speaks to us, faith always responds. If we don't respond, it's because of a lack of faith. And so there was a response of faith in the life of Abraham. And I want you to notice three things that Abraham does. I want you to notice, first off, that he acknowledges the word of God in his life. He said, preacher, what do you mean? When Isaac was born, you know what he named him? Get ready. This is deep. He named him Isaac. You say, why is that significant? Because a few chapters earlier, God had commanded Abraham to call him Isaac. What was it that Abraham was doing? Abraham could have named him any number of things. Toby, for instance, is a beautiful name, but he didn't choose the name Toby. I understand why he shied away from the name Brannon. I wouldn't want to be named that either. But we find that he named him the name that God had commanded. Could it be that what Abraham was saying is this? This is the child that God promised me. Could it be that what Abraham is saying is that many long years ago, God promised me a son and now he has given me this son. Let me tell you what faith does. Whenever God moves in our life, faith acknowledges that that's God moving. Faith says, yeah, that was God. (laughs) Let me tell you something. When you get a blessing in your life, when somebody walks up, sticks a $20 bill in your hand and says, I'm thinking about you. When you get some of you, it's tax season. You responsible ones already done your taxes. All us reprobates, we haven't done them yet. Amen. When you get that big tax check back, you say, I earned that. You think the government wouldn't take it away? Let me tell you the reason that you'll get that tax check back. Faith says God did that. When you go to the doctor and it looks dismal and you get that good report back, the flesh says, well, that's coincidence. Faith says God did that. God did that. When you when you are going down the road, now some of you, I mean, some of you drive like I do, amen? It's a wonder you make it anywhere. And when you're going down the road and you ever think about the fact that the only thing that separates you from imminent death is a double yellow line in common sense, neither of which are respected in this day, and you make it your destination. Let me ask you something. Now, you don't have to raise your hand to this, but how many of you have ever actually thanked God for the traveling mercies you prayed for? When you get there, the flesh says, I drove responsibly and the weather was good, but faith says God did that. God did that. He acknowledges the word of God. But I want you to know, secondly, he acquiesces to the will of God. He takes Isaac and on the eighth day he circumcises him. You know why? God had commanded him to. It was a covenant that had been established. You know what he was doing? He was holding up his end of the bargain. Let me tell you what faith does. Faith makes a Christian a worker. You hear me? Faith causes us to respond in obedience and service to the Lord. You say, I don't believe that. I I believe you can love God and not serve Him. Christ didn't believe that. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We get in the church house and we shout her down. And buddy, we just get excited over how much God loves us. A lot of times we're just trying to think, uh, keep from thinking about how little we love Him. A lot of times we get into the house of God and we talk about how much He loves us all single day. And the other seven or six days of the week, I don't know, maybe you've got eight days in your week. I can't find that eighth day. That must be fun day. Amen. But uh, the other six days of the week, we get out and prove how little we love Him. 
Faith responds in obedience. Faith does not buck the word of God because faith is birthed out of the word of God. Faith is us looking and saying there's no reason. You know what the Bible says about Abraham? Against hope he believed in hope. When there was no reason to hope, he put his faith in God and he hoped anyway. And faith cries in the face of the flesh and says, though you would tempt me and tell me that God is not true, that His Word is not true, faith says, I will not believe you. I will trust God. I will obey Him. The response of his faith is that he acknowledged the will of God. He obeyed the Word of God, or he acknowledged the Word of God and obeyed the will of God. But I want you to notice that he acclaimed the worth of God. Look in verse 8. The Bible tells us that when Isaac was weaned, that he had a great feast and celebrated. You say, preacher, what's the significance there? That's a happy papa. (laughs) That's what that is. That's a happy papa. I got Brother Kerry back there. They had a baby. Well, his wife did. He didn't. He used to. I'd get jokes and stuff. He'd text me all the time. He'd text me jokes and things like that. Now, every time I get a text from him, it's Levi's first baseball hat. That's, hold on, I'll show it to you. See that right there? That's all I get. You know why? He's a proud papa. Stuff that used to matter don't matter to him anymore. He's a proud papa. You know what he does? He rejoices in that son of his. But let me tell you something else, and I know he does it, and I'm not saying to puff him up or to brag on him. That head's big enough as it is, amen? But, but I'm not saying this to puff him up. But I believe he not only rejoices in that child, I believe he rejoices to the Lord in that child. I, believe, I, I don't believe he's just pleased with the Lord. I believe he praises the Lord as a result of that child. What was Abraham doing? He was saying, Lord, we're going to have a big feast and we're not celebrating Isaac. We're celebrating you. We're thanking you for what you've done in our life. And let me tell you what faith does. Faith doesn't just say that God did that, but faith says and praises holy name for it. Faith, listen, I'm not against public praise. We've got this in our head nowadays that if we praise God publicly, we're a bunch of charismatics. That's a lie straight out of hell and as far from the truth as it can possibly be. Public praise has always been a part of the life of God's people. You read through the book of Psalms. Let me tell you something, neighbor. Those Psalms weren't private Psalms. They were written to be sung. Public praise. And when we acclaim God's worth, it causes us to go out and say, Boy, the Lord's sure been good to me. Boy, Lord, sure been good to me. I see something else beautiful in this. It's isn't about Abraham's faith, but you just bear with me. You find as you study the life of Abraham that Sarah, in a, in a lot of ways, pictures Israel. Uh, the natural Israel. Israel without faith. We find that Isaac, her son, at one point was weaned from his mother. And when he did, Abraham, the father had a great feast and celebration. Can I tell you that there was a time when the Son of Promise, the Son of God, was weaned from His mother from Israel. Now you say, preacher, what do you mean? I I know that Mary was the mother of Jesus' body. She wasn't the mother of God, by the way. She was the mother of Jesus' body. But what I'm saying is this. As you look at this as a picture and as a type, there was a day when our Lord, the Bible tells us, was cut off out of the land of the living, separated from Israel, cut off from amongst his brethren. He came unto his own, and his own 
received him not. But let me tell you something on that day. Even though it was dark here on this earth, even though the rocks began to rend and the earth began to quake and the veil was torn in two, I'd like you to know that in heaven the Father of the Son was having a feast day and celebrating what His Son had done. You see, in this passage you have all these pictures and shadows, and we're going to talk about them here in just a moment, of the coming Messiah. We see the resource of His faith. We see the responsibility of Abraham's faith, and faith always acts responsibly in relation to the Word of God, the response of his faith, but we see the responsibility of it as well. I want you to look here in uh, verse number 9. The Bible says, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. The thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also the... Of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation because he is thy seed. Verse 14 says, And Abraham rose up early in the morning, took bread and a bottle of water, and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child, and sent her away. You see, there wasn't just a response, but a responsibility that was put upon Abraham's shoulders. Faith always responds, but faith will always act responsibly too. Irresponsibility in relation to our walk with Christ is a result of the flesh, not of faith. It's not an act of faith. And I want you to notice what Abraham did. Now, listen, Ishmael was just as much Abraham's son as Isaac was. Abraham loved that boy. He cared about him deeply. But there came a time when he had to cast this bondwoman out and cast out her son. I want to say, first off, that this was an act of great personal sacrifice. By the way, this was true sacrifice. We talk about Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, and we're going to talk about that in the next couple weeks. But let me just say that Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac was not a sacrifice in the sense that we think of a sacrifice. The book of Hebrews tells us what it was that Abraham had in mind when he offered up Isaac, and the Bible says that God was able to raise him, Isaac, from the dead. It was a declaration of Abraham's faith, but it was not an act of sacrifice. Abraham believed that God would be able to raise Isaac from the dead because God had promised that in Isaac would his seed be called. But with Ishmael, it is an act of pure sacrifice. Abraham's having to give something up that he loves dearly. Let me tell you something. I know this goes contrary to modern theology and modern quote-unquote Christianity. But if you walk with God, it's going to mean giving some things up. I know that's not popular now, but I'm here to help you and to love you and to tell you the truth. And if you're going to walk with God, it's going to mean giving some things up. You say, oh, preacher, I have to work my way to heaven. No, that's not what I said. I said if you're going to walk with God, there's going to be some things that you're going to have to give up. You see, when Abraham was giving up Ishmael, he was giving up the fruit of his mistakes and of his sin. Ishmael was a result of his disobedience. And in many ways, Ishmael embodied Abraham's flesh, just as Isaac embodied the spiritual side of Abraham. Now, not in a literal way, but in a picture way. And so what Abraham was doing, in a sense, 
was he was having to put away the old son and own the new son. Let me tell you what the Christian has a responsibility to do once he's saved. Put away the old man. Put on the new man in Christ Jesus. Put away the flesh. You say eradicate it? No, Christ will do that one day. But cease walking in it from day to day, undisturbed, uninterrupted. Make up your mind that you're going to have to live your life differently. And if you want to walk with God, it's going to take that. If we're going to be Christians, we're going to have to act like Christians. And if we're going to act like Christians, it's going to take us being Christians. It's that simple. It was an act of personal sacrifice. But it was an act of profound separation too. What did Sarah say? This bondwoman's son shall not be heir with Isaac. You see... According to Old Testament uh, teachings, customs, we'll put it that way, because the law had not come into play yet, Ishmael was due the birthright. He would have got at least double whatever Isaac did. Isaac was just out in the rain. And so the only way for Isaac to get what he needed was the bondwoman and her son had to be cast out. Let me tell you something. The Bible says that the spirit and the flesh lust one against the other, they're contrary to each other. Preacher, what does that mean? It means that as you feed the Spirit, you starve the flesh, vice versa. The story's given, I've told it before, but I got the microphone, so you'll bear with me, amen? (laughs) The story's told of a young man that was standing at a dog fight. I know that's not politically correct, but they used to happen and still do. He was standing at a dog fight, and he was watching as they were placing and taking bets. And time and time again, there was this old man across the arena, across the rink from him, that just continued to win. Every time that he put his bet down, he won. And the young man began to be puzzled by these. He thought, well, maybe there's some secret to the old man. Maybe he's got some inside information. So finally, he walked around the arena and he went over to the old man. He said, old man, I've got to ask you something. He said, yes, son. He said, every time you place a bet, it's right. I mean, it's like clockwork. You can't go wrong. Every time you place a bet, you pick the dog that wins. How do you do that? That old man smiled and he looked at him and he said, I just picked the one that looks like it's the best fed. Whichever one's been fed the most, that's the one that always wins. Let me tell you what separation is about in your life. Let me tell you what getting the junk out of your life is about, getting the filth and the sin out of your life. Whichever dog you feed... That's the one that's going to win. You wonder why you're a defeated Christian? Let me give you a hint. If you're feeding the wrong dog, you're going to stay defeated. If you allow sin in your life and feed upon the things of this world, you're going to have a tough time obeying the Spirit of God. It requires that you make a change. There has to be a separation. But I want to say finally, you can turn to Galatians chapter number 4. I'm going to hush after this, I promise. Galatians chapter 4. I want you to look with me at verse number 21. I want to say that the responsibility of Abraham's faith in putting away uh, the Ishmael, the son of the bondwoman, was that it was an act of profound separation. It was an act of prophetic significance. But I want you to look with me. Galatians chapter number 4. I didn't mark it. That way we'd both get there at the same time. I want to say that this is a passage and this is a truth of great prophetic significance. The Bible says in verse number 21, Tell me ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? 
For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory. Now that word allegory in your King James Bible is not saying that it was a uh, fable or a myth, but it's saying that there was a picture in that story. For these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar, or Hagar is how we would know her. Notice it did not say Ishmael. It said it was Hagar. Ishmael was not a picture of the law. He was a picture of those born under the law and serving under the law. Notice what it says. It says, for this Agar, or Hagar as we would know it, is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, uh, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh, you hear that, persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now you say, preacher, what does all that mean? We find in this story a picture of the mutual exclusivity. Boy, that sounds expensive, don't it? Mutual exclusivity of grace and of law. Say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Meaning that it's of works, it's no more of grace. And if it's of grace, then it is no more of works. You see, Hagar is a picture of the law and a picture of the bondage of the law. And Ishmael was born under the law or was a picture of those born under the flesh. Isaac was the child of promise. And so, uh, Sarah is a picture in this context of grace. And Isaac born as a child of promise. You say, what are you getting at? The reason that he cast out Hagar wasn't that she was a bad woman. It's that she was the bond woman. You see, God is teaching us this. That the only way we can walk in the Spirit is in the utter refusal of the flesh. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm talking about making up our mind that we're going to cast out the things of this world, the things of the flesh, to the best of our ability. As long as you're trying to please God. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of Christians that have begun in grace and are trying to continue in the law in this day that we live in. There's a lot of Christians that think that their self-worth and merit is vested in their morality and their own good works. When neighbor, let me tell you something, you can do all the good works in the world, but if you don't know Christ, then you're not a son of God. In this world, though you may live like a rascal and a scoundrel, if you're washed in the blood of Christ, then you're His child and He owns you. He owns you. You see, the key to Abraham's faith is this. His whole life in many ways pictures the revelation of God to mankind. And at this point, we find a separation of law and grace. You say, preacher, what about before then? There was a time, are you hearing me? When Ishmael and Isaac were living together, it was a short time. But there was a time 
There was a time when the law was valid on this earth. Nothing wrong with the law. She wasn't a bad woman, you hear me? She was a bond woman. Is the law sin? God forbid. I had not known sin saved by the law. That's what the book of Romans teaches us. But the law was never meant to save. The Bible says, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And there was a time when the law was valid in God's economy. But listen to me. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace was not absent while the law was valid in God's economy. Grace has always been the means. The law was the means of showing man his need of grace. The law was the means of making a man aware of the uh, unending chasm between him and God. And that only the blood sacrifice of a precious Lamb of God could bridge that gap. Oh, the grace. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Let me tell you something. If you're here tonight and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, there's no better time. You won't do it tomorrow. Do you hear me? You won't do it tomorrow. Nobody ever did anything on a tomorrow. They always did it on a today. I don't care who you are. You say, I did something yesterday, but when you did it yesterday, it was today. Does that make sense? We're on the same page. You say, I'm going to do something tomorrow. Yeah, but when you do it tomorrow, it's going to be a today. No man ever did anything except today, on a today. That's why today is the day of salvation. God's beckoning you to an attitude of urgency. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, today's the day of salvation. And listen, if you're getting frustrated and defeated in your walk with Christ, why don't you come down, speak to the Lord, ask Him to help you. Try to live the Christian walk in the Spirit instead of the flesh. And if you've got sin in your life, why don't you come down to this altar and cast out the bondwoman, her son, get your heart where it needs to be with God.